get to say good morning once again. It's not normal that I get to say good morning twice and welcome you. I'm so glad uh, to have that. Uh, my name is Ryan. If you missed that um, at the beginning of the service, um, I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and uh, again, so thankful that you are with us and uh, that we're able to worship together. And as we sang that last song and we reflected, I hope um, our hearts were drawn into reflecting on the faithfulness of God. Um, I also hope that you caught the response to that, which the proper response to God's faithfulness is uh, surrender. Um, our lives being surrendered to him. And we surrender our lives to God because we trust God and that we believe that he is for us and that his faithfulness and the evidence of that faithfulness um, is worthy of our lives being just acts of worship to him no matter where we might be or what life might bring us. But we live lives completely uh, surrendered. We are in a study in the book of Hebrews uh, here. If you're a guest with us, if this is your first time with us, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. We'll continue that this morning, and we're going to uh, focus our attention primarily on verses 13 through 20 of chapter 6. And so if you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews 6, uh, 13, um, we'll get there in just a moment. But if you were not with us last week, which I see a few faces that I don't remember uh, meeting or seeing last week, um, you missed sort of the first or sort of the opening to this uh, argument or this message that the original author of this letter um, was giving to us. And it's, it's helpful to remember, um, I've, I've laughed about this or joked about this, hopefully others have laughed about it. Um, you know, I say the jokes, y'all laugh, that's just kind of the rhythm that we're going to be in for the next 30 minutes. Um, but uh, I, when we look, and, and I have to break down uh, the books of the Bible, and of course these epistles like this letter uh, that we call the Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews, is uh, we take these in little chunks, but this letter would have been read in its entirety to the church, so there would not have been these little breaks, and so uh, the reason sometimes I have to go back and sort of catch us up is because the arguments flow together. The, the, what he is going to say to us today in, in verses 13 through 20, there's some foundational pieces to that um, found in the verses that preceded that. And so um, that's why we have a podcast, by the way, so you can go back and you can catch up. If you missed last week, um, you can go anywhere you find a podcast. Just look for City Church Melissa, and you can find that message. Um, so I don't have to preach two sermons today. But it's important as we look at verse 13 to go back and see the warnings of the earlier verses of chapter 6. And those warnings were that the people, these people, again, this letter written to Christians, most likely would believe Jewish Christians in Rome facing persecution, um, small little house churches sort of spread out all over. And the warnings that he gave and it gives us in chapter 6 are that they would have become dull in their hearing, not that they started out that way, but they sort of will have sort of left and forgotten so many of the things of God that they would not be able to understand the bigness of God and who Jesus was. That's what he, he starts. And then after that warning, he follows that warning with what we focused on last week, which is a warning that there would be people who desired and even participated in all the things of God. They wanted to sort of be a part of, they would have participated in what we might call the church. They would have engaged in that. They would have been a part of sitting under the teaching. They would have even prayed or done all of these things, but they did the things of God without ever truly knowing God. And that warning is given to the church to say, we're not here to just participate in these things or to receive the things of God, but we're here to know God. And as J.I. Packer wrote an entire book on this, 
the magnificence and the amazement that we should have that we can know our creator. We can know God. And that is the aim, to know God. It's not just to participate. It's not just to have tasted the heavenly gift as he described in chapter 6, verse 4, or to share in the Holy Spirit, to be, rather to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that we as believers are after. But this warning that he gives comes and reminds us that we also should consider it an amazing act of grace and mercy that knowing that this could happen, that we who know Christ are held by him. If not for God's love for me, I would be one of these described in verses four, five, and six that would have fallen away. At an early age, I participated in all the things of the church, but I did not know God and I had no interest in knowing God. I just simply did it to appease my mom. But God in his mercy used the seeds that were sown in my life at that early age and later in my life, I came to know God because he pursued me, because he came after me. That's the God that we are called to and it's his love for us that secures us. And so he makes this argument, he gives this warning in the verses preceding verse 13, and then he comes to 11 and he expresses, the author of Hebrews expresses his desire for the church, knowing that these things exist, knowing that there would be those that would fall away that weren't really here to know God. This is what he wants for those who are his children. And we desire for each of you to show the same earnestness, this is earnestness of salvation, to have full assurance of hope until the end. He wants the church to have full assurance of their salvation because it was that full assurance that would give them hope to sustain them until the end, until the end of their lives is what he's saying there. Until they came face to face with the Jesus that they had put their faith in, they needed to hold on to, they needed to have full assurance of that salvation. And why? Because without that, verse 12, that they may not be sluggish, but rather imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. That they would have hope so that they wouldn't grow sluggish, so that they wouldn't grow to forget the things of God and to, to, to be apart from his ministry. When we talk about engaging and serving in the church and, and ministry, what we're inviting you into is to Reflect on the hope that you have in Christ, and then because of that hope that you have in Christ, that you have been then gifted by God to use those gifts in some way and to then engage in the kingdom work to be done rather than just sort of sitting and sort of taking a nap through the whole rest until Jesus returns. No, get engaged, get involved. And then he describes why we can have this hope and how we can have this hope, and this is where we land, picking up in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, remember the promises he said in verse 12? And he calls their mind back to the promise that God made to Abraham. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with the oath. 
with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So here's what he says. He says, we want you to have hope that would sustain you till the end. And let me explain to you why you can have hope, where that hope comes from. That hope comes from the promises of Almighty God. That God has made a promise to you, and that promise cannot be broken. Well, how do we know this? Because God swore upon himself, it says. Now, let's go back just in case... You're unfamiliar with this promise that God made to Abraham. It comes from Genesis chapter 22. God had promised Abraham before Genesis 22, he had promised Abraham that he would give him a son. Abraham is very old in age at this point when he promises to give him a son. His wife is even more advanced in years and thereby it is not humanly possible for Abraham and his wife Sarah to have a child. Humanly possible, impossible. I said that right. I don't think I did, but that's okay. Y'all will figure it out. You're smarter than I am. Not possible. And he makes him this promise that you're going to have a son. And not only that, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. So through this son, through this promise that I have made to you, there will be a great nation that fills the earth. And it's described in 22 as the sands cover the seas, right? So God fulfills this promise. And he gives Abraham a son named Isaac. And then after he gives him this son named Isaac, God calls Abraham to do something that seems, I'll just tell you as a father, seems somewhat cruel. God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac. I want you to take him up to this mountaintop. I want you to prepare an altar. And I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Abraham has to be thinking. Well, Ryan, being Abraham, would have to be thinking. Surely, God would not do this. He promised me this son. This is the son of promise. He said that I would be the father of many nations. But do you know what Abraham did? Without blinking an eye, without a question in his heart, he started to take Isaac up to the mountaintop, prepared the altar, lays his son down on the altar. Abraham had such confidence in God's promise to him that he knew if God has called me to sacrifice this son of promise, he will raise him from the dead because God will not fail to fulfill his promises to us. That was the confidence that Abraham had in the promises of God, and it led him to be willing to do anything for God, to live his life completely sacrificed and surrendered to God. Abraham was not sluggish. He had hope. He knew that God could not break his word, that God's promises were sure and true, and he could bank his entire life on them. He could bank his son's life on them. If I have to kill my son, God is powerful enough. He will raise him up because he has promised me this son, and he will not let him die. By the way, that same mountaintop where Isaac was prepared to be sacrificed, where then there was a ram in the thicket and the story goes and continues, that's the same mountaintop that God made many promises and that pointed to the mountain where Jesus would lay down his life on a cross. 
all the story of God and his redemptive story and what he's doing at work. But Abraham, everything in his life was anchored to this promise. And and the author of Hebrews, to these Christian believers facing so many challenges, so many hurts, so many persecution, they're losing their lives, they're being killed, literally being killed. That's why when we talk about persecution here in our country, I don't give it a lot of credence. Yes, there are some challenging things, but we're not being killed yet. But we should be prepared for that. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to continue the faith to live as Christ has called us to live, even when those things might come? There's other things that you're facing, sickness, relationship brokenness. I don't know all that you're walking through, but I do know that the God who makes promises to us will fulfill them. And those promises in our lives, being so sure of those promises, will give us security. So the author of Hebrews, knowing all of this about these churches that he's writing this letter to, and God knowing that we would one day read this letter and need to be reminded that his promises are true, he says, I make promises and there's nothing greater than me that I can make a promise on, and so I make promises on myself, (laughs) upon myself. Sometimes you might think to yourself, well, that seems a little bit arrogant. Well, if somebody's going to be arrogant, God gets to be arrogant, If someone gets to just say, I'm doing it for my glory and you don't have to understand it, it's not really important that you know all the reasons why, God gets to do that because he's God. Because there is no one greater than himself to swear upon. When I was young and dumb, like two weeks ago, and um, I, as a young boy, me and my buddies, you know, we'd get together and we'd be doing whatever young boys do, which was foolishness, um, and we'd start to talk about something, some feat of strength or some activity or something like that, and we say, no, I can do that. I, I swear to you I can do that. I can jump that high. I can swim that lap. I can run faster than you. I can do this. And guess what? If, if, if really things kind of got a little heated and we got, you know, we're about to go to blows over this, we'd swear on something sacrilegious. I don't know what it would have been, but we just fill in the blank. I swear on just fill in the blank. And I'm not even going to repeat it because it was just stupidity, things that were just not, shouldn't be said out loud, but we'd swear on those things, right? Because that was like a way for us to say, this is, I'm, I'm emphasizing this. I'm letting you know how seriously I take my abilities to do whatever. God, he doesn't have anything to swear upon other than himself because there's nothing greater than himself. This is why the, the promise that he's referring to, I referenced Genesis 22, God said, by myself, I have sworn to you, Abraham, declares the Lord. By myself, I have made this promise. And so we can know that God makes promises to us. But how can we know, how can we be sure that his promises cannot be broken? Well, it says here in verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs, this is the children of Abraham, of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Two unchangeable things. The first he refers to is that God is unable to lie. The second is, is that God is unable to change. 
I'm going to introduce you to one of the doctrines of our faith, a big theological word that's very hard to say, the immutability of God. I want you to use that this week in a sentence. All your friends will think you are holy and smart. The immutability of God. All that is is that God is unchanged, the unchanging nature of God, meaning it is impossible for God to change. He cannot lie because he is God, and we kind of understand that because we understand God is holy. But sometimes we forget that God cannot change. And guess what is found in something that cannot change? When we stand on this ground, it feels we might for a moment at least feel somewhat confident, but I can guarantee you if an earthquake began to shake, all of us would, our confidence would sort of lessen that we are okay, right? We wouldn't feel very secure standing on ground that was shaking beneath our feet. I know we have an embassy from the West Coast that lives here now. Some of you have experienced these unchanging soils beneath your feet in real life. I haven't ever experienced that, but I can imagine if I was standing on that ground, I would not feel very secure, but it's because this ground doesn't change that I have security. You're sitting in chairs right now. You have security that you're sitting comfortably, I hope, in those chairs. There was, by the way, a day when we had metal folding chairs that were not nearly as secure as those that you're sitting in today, and shout out to our good friend Pat, who once fell down because the chair just collapsed underneath him. Love you, Pat. But it was the security because that chair, that soil, the the, the ground that we stand upon, it doesn't change. That is where we have security. And so when we talk about the fact that God is unchanging, that gives us a security. We have security in knowing that God does not move or give way because his nature is that he is unchanging. He cannot change. I think of David. David, you may know, was anointed as king, but then the current king, Saul, wasn't real happy about that, and so he decided he was going to kill David, even though God had anointed him as king. And so David, because he did not want to kill the previous king, who is also God's anointed, he fled for his life until God would deal with Saul as he saw fit. And so David is running all around Israel, fleeing for his life from Saul, and he hides himself in a cave. I've actually had the opportunity to go to that cave or the caves in the region where David would have hid himself. And in 2 Samuel 22, David is singing, in a sense, a song of worship to God. And what is he worshiping God for as he hides for his life, deals with the persecution, the challenge, the hardships of this broken world? He is singing and praising God because he is unchanging. While everything else around David in his life is changing and he's unsure of the future and where he might find hope, he remembers God. And he says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge. A little bit later in the same song, for who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? You may have grown up singing rock of ages, cleft for me. I hide myself in thee. Jesus is that ultimate rock, but it's taken from this text of Scripture where David hid himself in the rock. And notice what he does. He describes God. He gives him the title of rock. And who is a rock except 
our God, unchanging, the rock being symbolic of God's unchanging nature. Over and over again in the New Testament, it speaks to God's unchanging nature. James tells us in 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, a gift from the Father of which there is no shadow of turning from them. He does not change. There's no variation. Here's where we, the rubber meets the road. What would it mean if God could change? What if God could change? Well, that would, not, that would make him to be not God. And so when we know that God is unchanging, we understand more fully what it means to have the security and the hope that we have. If God could change, if he could change for the better, that would mean before he changed, there was some deficiency in him. If God could change voluntarily, it would mean that he saw himself as less than perfect, or if he had to change involuntarily, that would mean there was some authority, higher power than him. None of those things are true. Because all of this, we know that God is unchanging. He is perfect, and he is secure. So when we face all of the circumstances that life brings us, we're plodding along, everything is going great, and then as what do we often say? Life happens. This thing went this way. This circumstance or this event went another direction. This relationship, this job, this friendship. I can't know all that you're working through, but the circumstances of life are fickle. And if we anchor our lives to our circumstances or to the things that we can see, can you imagine how quick we would be to grow sluggish? And the sluggishness would be a result of the fact that we don't have hope. But we can have hope. And we do have hope, and we have hope in a God who makes promises and does not break them. The same way that God made a promise to Abraham, even more so, he made a promise to each of us that was secured by the blood of his son. That covenant, when Jesus, we're going to read as we take communion in a few moments, we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where it talks about Jesus and describes as he is ushering in and says this blood, this is the blood of a new covenant. And that new covenant that God made with each and every one of us who have put our faith in him was sealed by Jesus' blood. That is a promise. A promise sealed by his blood. And this is what verse 19 describes from chapter 6, what that gives us, the result of the promise. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the world, enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. I don't want you to get caught up on Melchizedek. That's next weekend. Don't miss it. We're gonna hear all about Melchizedek and why the author of Hebrews continues to refer to him. No, what I want you to focus on is this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Is your soul weary? Do you find yourself tossed to and fro by the waves of life? God would say to you, remember 
the promises that I have made to you. And remember that those promises were secured for you by my son, his broken body and his shed blood. Remember that. And know that I do not change. The promises that I have made to you will be true. We live, as we talk about often in this church, in this in-between period. We know if we have put our faith in Jesus, that we have a hope for everlasting and eternal life, that we have union with Christ, and that union with Christ will secure us forever and ever and ever. And yet, we live in the not yet. We're waiting for Christ to return and to finish what he started. We're waiting for the author and perfecter of our faith to bring it to completion. We live in the already but not yet. We live in this in-between period where hard things happen, where we live in a broken world, a broken world, by the way, that has been broken by sin. We hold on to the promises of God secured by Jesus, who, as he describes here, went behind the curtain. We hold on to the promises secured by a high priest who made the once and for all final sacrifice for sin. So no longer do we have to make sacrifices for sin on our own as if we would be able to do that. And no longer do we have to expect, is there something other than that, other than putting our final and complete faith in what Jesus has done for us. So as we come here in just a moment to receive from the Lord's table, I hope you will remember what Jesus has done, what he has secured for you, the promises of God that are secured in a covenant sealed with his blood. And my prayer for each and every one of us is yes, that we may have full assurance of hope until the end, that that hope would allow us to know that we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, a hope that enters in. Let Jesus be the anchor for your soul. He is God, therefore he does not change. That's very, very good news for us. We're gonna receive from the Lord's table, which is an act of remembrance. Jesus gave his disciples in his last meal, he said, do this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. And what he was inviting them into was that they would remember what he would do for them, which was to go to a cross, to be that final sacrifice for sin once and for all as he laid down his life. Here's what I can tell you, whether you're dealing with health issues, whether you're dealing with relationship issues, whether you're dealing with provision, you're wondering how this is gonna work out financially, whether there's something between you and your kids, I can't know everything that you're dealing with in this very moment, but God does. And every single one of those issues are the result that sin entered into the world and this world is broken. They're the result of sometimes my own sinfulness, 
the sinfulness of others, the reality that this world is not as it should be, but one day the promise of Jesus is that he will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear. That's the promise that God has made to us. And so when we come to the table, we remember that the sacrifice has been once and for all finally paid for sin on our behalf. And so we come to acknowledge that, to say to God and to the community of faith that surrounds us that I've put my hope in Jesus. I've put my hope in what he has secured for me. I believe in his promises for me. And as we remember his sacrifice on the cross, my my prayer, my belief is, is it leads to faith. It strengthens us. It reminds us of what Jesus did and then we become worshipers. And worshipers, guess what worshipers do? They don't just sing on Sunday mornings. They live their lives and surrender to God, the one who secured their hope. So I want each and every one of you to know that hope. I'm gonna pray in just a moment. Before I do that, let me just give you some instructions on how we receive communion. I know we have guests here and it's a crowded room. Praise the Lord. Um, If you're sort of nearest to the center aisle, you don't have to do math, but just kind of look and kind of feel that out. If you're nearest to the center aisle, you'll come to this table. One of our elders will be down front to serve you. If you're near to the exterior aisles, our elders will be there to serve you. Um, As I pray and the worship team begins to sing, I just wanna invite you to pray. Ask the Lord to remind you of his promises to you. Ask the Lord to help you to, to know and have confidence so that you wouldn't grow sluggish, to make you like Abraham. If you don't know the hope of Christ, I'll be right down front. I'd love nothing more than to just come sit by me and have a conversation with me before you come to the table. We do this as an act of remembrance because those of us who have put our faith in Christ know what he has done for us and we are remembering that. So if that's not you, just spend some time in prayer. Come talk with me. Have a conversation with the Lord. Finally, if you do need gluten-free, we have those options at the back. Sorry, we're gonna make you swim upstream. Um, but you can go back to the back of the room to get that. Once we have the elements, uh, I'll come back up and I'll lead us so that we can take communion and receive from the Lord together as a family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. I thank you that you are for me a sure and steadfast anchor. The circumstances of my life are fickle. My heart itself is prone to wonder as we so often say but you are sure, you are steady. You are where hope is found. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would move in this room that every soul would know the hope that is found only in you. There is no hope found in the things of this world, the pursuits of this world, the lies of this world. That is not where hope is found. Hope is found in you alone. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, would you make yourself known in a powerful way so that my friends who are here have come because they want to hear from you, God. Would you speak to them? We receive communion this morning. As we commune with you, Jesus, give us 
a hope to remember the promises you have made that will secure us till the very end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.